I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And good morning once again. Welcome to I-94 here live on Lumpen Radio. My name is Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning. Quick uh, quick shout out to my big little brother. Kevin. Your big little brother? Yeah, he's, uh, well, he's 6'4 and 5 years younger than me. But it's his birthday today? But it's his birthday today. Oh, Happy birthday, Kevin. Happy birthday. Hey, today we're joined by members of the Caxton Club. They've just produced this new volume called Chicago by the Book, 101 Stories That Shaped Our City. It's a pretty interesting little collection. It's written by a whole bunch of people. But we are joined by the co-chairs of the publication committee. That is Ms. Kiz, Kim Coventry. Excuse me. I want to say kiss. I don't know. Maybe that's a Freudian slip there. And Susan Rossin. Welcome, <laughs> ladies. How are you this evening? How are you this morning? Well, great. Thanks nice for, to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we want to start off, what exactly is the Caxton Club? We're not really sure what you guys are or what you guys do, so fill us in, please. Well, the Caxton Club uh, was created in uh, 1895 by 15 men. We now have many uh, female members um, who were interested in uh, the book arts and in it was a moment in time when um, the arts and crafts movement was in its heyday and they wanted to create an organization in Chicago that would um, uh, foster and promote uh, the book arts. Um, and today we are about 350 strong. Uh, we meet on uh, once a month on a Wednesday for lunch and um, once Friday. a month on a Friday, Friday for, lunch. for lunch and once a month on a Wednesday for dinner. And we have uh, robust programs and great speakers and we publish an occasional uh, book. What, uh, what was the last one before uh, Chicago's 101? Uh, we published a book called uh, Other People's Books, and it was about association copies. Oh, what are association copies? Yeah. Well, many of the books uh, that we've published in the past have been focused on narrow bibliographic topics that would be of interest to uh, a, narrow, a narrow audience. Um, and that book was about uh, books that are inscribed from one person to another person and that the relationship um, between those two people and perhaps the book that, the, that was inscribed have another story beyond just oh, cool. what you know what's there so in other words it was a book that was either written by someone and then given to someone else and or donated in other words like a if i had a book that was uh written by virginia wolf and virginia wolf had signed it to me which is i don't have a book by the way from virginia <laughs> wolf thieves do not come by my place looking for this mysterious volume from virginia wolf but that's what you're talking about yes and if you'd had an affair with virginia wolf all the better <laughs> that's like going through library wow. books and finding the weird pictures that you yeah. yeah I, I did not have an affair with shanna i did not have an affair with virginia wolf i'm just letting you know that she's been dead for a long time i believe so i have a collection of photographs that i find in library books on my bulletin board at the library um one of the things that i wanted to talk to both of you about um, and we had a lovely coffee date this morning with uh, kim and susan why can i did because i gave them they were here an hour early because i'm a dummy and we used to do the show at 10 but i apologize hey you know the time change does screw all of us over. that's true um <laughs> But I did want to talk to you. So this, the format of this book, you don't use your typical literary sources. You have, you know, novels and nonfiction, but we also have uh, pamphlets, um, directories, all kinds of things. How did you guys decide not to just use, uh, you know, the form, the book format? Well, yeah, move bring right this over, over here to me. Um, well, this was this book was the work of a committee of eight members of the Caxton Club, uh, some of whom are uh, history, uh, they, they are historians of Chicago or Chicago culture, um, and some were in publishing and um, uh, or book selling. So we, we got together over a period of almost four years, and we had to decide what we would use 
as this list? What would be our criteria for this list? And um, we had three criteria, and I hope I don't forget them because I've forgotten them once before. Well, let's back up for a second. Yeah. You say it took you four years to do this. Yes. Okay. And, and how did you choose the members of the committee in the first place to do this? I, we haven't really talked about what the makeup of the Caxton Club is, or or you guys mentioned that you get together for lunch, but who, who are the people that are making these choices? Well, they are um, the people on our committee, all members, they often are book collectors. Most of them are book collectors. They collect different kinds of books, um, or they are librarians, or they are um, historians of the book. Um, and there are many different kinds of people. There are graphic designers who have joined Kim because they love me, books. Uh, before, there's like a subset of magicians. <laughs> Oh, magicians. Group. Oh. Yeah, yeah pe- people who collect books about magic. And That's there's wonderful. another subset of people who collect books about railroads. So there's a lot of um, variety in the membership. And um, basically, at the, the bottom line is we all love the book. Okay. So librarians and book collectors, basically untrustworthy people, are, are going forward for this. <laughs> Hooligans. Hooligans. So, okay, so, t- so continue. So continue, we Susan. had we developed three criteria, the first one being that it had to be a title or, that was about Chicago um, and told an interesting story about Chicago, it, or it had to be something that was about an achievement of an institution in Chicago, something that was notable, and the third criteria was that it had to have influenced uh, what people think about Chicago or outside Chicago and in, or it had influenced various things like uh, the sociology books that we put in here uh, influenced the way people do research about urban life um, today. So different kinds of influence uh, were important, and we needed each title to meet two of those three criteria. Um, and we argued a long time, and uh, some people really felt that it should go beyond a book format, so we added periodicals. Mm-hmm. We decided not to do newspapers. That was just too... Yeah, I was going to ask why the Chicago Tribune, which well, arguably that's... is the Republican... Uh, I mean, it started as the Republican Party Bible, really, uh, wasn't included in this book. Well, we didn't... We That was just too vast a subject and a subject of its own, and we wanted... But we, everything had to be printed, published in some way or another. So that could include song sheets um, if we felt that the songs were very influential and important or interesting. Uh, it could include pamphlets if that was what we found, like in the case of the Mies van der Rohe buildings on Lakeshore Drive, we felt we needed to include Mies. Um, and those two buildings that were first built, the two first high-rises, there was a wonderful brochure, a, sale, a sales brochure that, that really told the story of them, and we included that. Uh, there were some brochures that had to do with or reports, like a report that was published on how O'Hare was planned. Um, so we felt that these could be mixed in with what are basically books. Um, and and so that's that's how we arrived at the list. Were there were there things that I mean you, you did have the Sears Roebuck catalog in here, which I think is a is a notable addition. There's there's no question yeah, that was Montgomery wildly, Ward too. Yeah. yeah, wildly influential. Were there things that were near misses for you guys? Were there arguments that that saw some not make the list of 101 that stand out in your mind? You want to talk about that? Well, you know, just a little bit more to answer your question about the process. We uh, began by asking everyone on the committee to come to the, a meeting with uh, many, with a selection, um, and uh, they were with a selection, and uh, we all met, and we started out with a list of about maybe 300, 350 uh, titles, and we immediately said, "Let's vote on all of these, uh, hand up, hand down." And we that we got to about uh, m- uh, maybe twenty-five or thirty items at that juncture. Then we decided that we decided we, that we would um, meet again and start o- over with the other balance of that list. At that second meeting, in the third meeting, in the fourth meeting, people continued to bring more titles. So as the list we you know, solidified and voted on certain books, the list continued to grow. So it was sort of shrinking and growing. Some things got eliminated as well right away. Um, but it was an enormous task. And um, we had to be democratic. Everybody had to agree on every on every item. Um, and so in the end, we 
had about, well, we, we had probably 120. And then we had to fight it out um, over which, which books were going to be dropped. So we had an excess of things. Um, so there aren't, yes, there are probably things that didn't make it. But um, in the end, we felt that our list uh, was very um, reflective of everything we wanted to represent. Did you guys fight over anything vehemently? Was there a battle? Oh, sure. Um, yes, we had uh, one of our members said uh, over and over again when we were fighting, he said, well, that's not a hill I want to die on. So he would let go of it. Um, but um, I, I would say, too, I often like to mention this. Uh, another member w- insisted that menus should be included. Yeah. And, nah. and well, at that point, I, I, we kind of drew the line. Drew no, the line menus. on menus. Yeah. 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 Well, we also said we're not going to include two books by the same author. Yeah. We also decided that we would keep it to Chicago proper. So there are books, say, like by Edna Ferber about Chicago life in the, the farmland just beyond Chicago, uh, which we decided we just couldn't do. So we kept it to not, not even Evanston made it in here. What um, about Liebling, though? He's not from Chicago. But no, it's not it. about, but he wrote about oh, Chicago. Oh, about the city itself. Right. I understand. It was, okay. it was focusing on the city itself proper. Okay. I wanted to mention the, uh, there's a, there was a book in here. It's number 17 by William Steed, If Christ Came to Chicago. A plea for the union of all who love in the service and of all who suffer, and it's it's you know it's a it's a book about poverty and he was a minister from England I believe that came to write about it. But what's fascinating is he died on the Titanic and uh, after he um, that's fascinating about the story that he he died on the yeah, Titanic. Yeah, that's what I was fascinated okay. about. Okay. I actually read excerpts of this when I was an undergrad. Um, but he also got into faddish spiritualism and the occult and then mm-hmm. died on the Titanic. And I, I like to point out weird trivia in these books, but uh, it's pretty fascinating. Well, the other piece about that book that I find fascinating is that 70,000 copies sold on the first day that that book was published. And that essay was written by Martin Marty, the um, scholar from the University of Chicago. And I agree with you. It's a great essay. It's a fascinating um, piece of history that not many, many people know. And um, it it turns out uh, that um, uh, he was he taught the author Steve talks a lot about what I guess the um, the uh, Holy Trinity um, or Martin Marty re- refers to what might be considered the Holy Trinity and in, in this case it's the industrialists um, Pullman Field and Armor um, of Chicago so in the book um, well it was just. Uh, bestseller immediately but the i thought for me the most interesting thing about that entry was that um steed himself went after the houses of prostitution and uh the bars and all the things about the corruption that is in the city that he found when he came in 1893 for the fair and decided to write a book about if christ came to chicago what would he think about all of this and so we all everybody Chicagoan had to become purified through religion but he did a map which we reproduce it's beautiful which is uh which shows in red in a certain area of the city all the houses of prostitution and the ironic thing that that Martin Marty found out as he was writing this is that Steed himself was even though he was you know he was damning all of these um, houses of prostitution and other bad places for people. He actually went to them. <laughs> you don't say. Yes, of course, Clark Street, that area, there was actually a later book, Chicago Confidential, that came out in the 1950s about the same area that talked about how they were still cut purse joints and, and houses of prostitution. Uh, Fedo Irish Pub actually sits in one of the most notorious old uh, right gin state. joints. Yeah. Hey, speaking of which, and, and I think this is a good op- opportunity for us to play our first reading, you were able to get a pretty powerhouse list of people to write about these books. Uh, Alex Kotlowitz, who we just had on last week's show, uh, is featured in this book. And we're going to play a selection actually by Frank Rich. He's a uh, former New York Times theater critic. He now is the uh, editor-at-large at New York Magazine, writing about a key book, uh, I think, one of, the, one of the great books actually that's been written about Chicago, which is Norman Mailer's The Siege of Chicago. So we're going to take a listen to that. Music this week is by the Chandeliers. We want to thank them. Readings, as always, by Shannon Van Volt. When we come back, we'll be speaking with the members of the Caxton Club about Chicago by the Book. Eighty-five. 
Miami and the Siege of Chicago, an informal history of the Republican and Democratic conventions of 1968, by Frank Rich. Like the other explosive events of 1968, the tumult in Chicago that summer, a civil war within the Democratic National Convention, riots in the city beyond the arena's doors, required a new language to capture it. How could prose possibly match the instant eyewitness capabilities of television, the ubiquitous medium that was already pushing newspapers and magazines on their path to obsolescence? Miami and the Siege of Chicago, a chronicle of both that year's Republican and Democratic conventions, originally written by the novelist Norman Mailer, 1923 to 2007, on assignment for Harper's Magazine, was an effort to invent that new language. Mailer had long been captivated by the literary revolution known as New Journalism, hatched in the 1960s by a pair of iconoclastic magazine editors, Harold Hayes of Esquire and Willie Morris of Harper's. Mailer's take on the 1960 Democratic convention for Esquire, Superman Comes to the Supermarket, was an early example of the genre. His book-length recounting of the 1967 anti-war march on the Pentagon, The Armies of the Night, subtitled History as Novel, The Novelist's History, was arguably his best-received literary venture since The Naked and the Dead in 1948. Miami and the Siege of Chicago was its eagerly awaited sequel. In lesser hands, new journalism could be a recipe for self-indulgent solipsism and mischievous fictionalization, but that is not the case with Mailer's reported from Miami and Chicago. His book holds up better than most political journalism written last week, let alone five decades ago, as history, as literature, and as a portrait of the United States both then and now. Mailer's Dickensian flourishes revivify the half-remembered figures of the time. Eugene McCarthy seemed less a presidential prospect than the dean of the finest English department in the land, while Mayor Richard Daly looked at his worst like a vastly robust peasant woman with dirty gray silk wig, and at his best, respectable enough to be the coach of the Chicago Bears. Nor did Miller forsake the wide-angle shot. He opened both chapters of his book with surveys of the convention's respective settings. In Chicago, the great American city, he hypothesized both the clean, tough, keen-eyed ladies of the near north side and the fear and absolute anguish of beasts dying upside down at the old slaughterhouses. And beyond the urbanology, Mailer took the measure of the larger dynamics at work, sketching an emerging political landscape that persists in many ways to this day. A classic New Deal liberal who thought Republicans did not deserve the presidency, never, Mailer was nonetheless ambivalent about the armies of the left he found in Chicago. Contemplating the yippies in Lincoln Park with their signs of vote pig in 68, and situating himself in the scene in the third person, he wrote, were those unkempt children the sorts of troops with whom one wished to enter battle? He fretted that Vietnam and black power were pushing him to a point where he would have to throw his vote in with the revolution, and asked, what price was he really willing to pay? This question is not resolved by the end of the book, which finds the author, manhandled but unbowed by Daly's rampaging cops, retreating to the revels at Hugh Hefner's Playboy Mansion. But if Mailer was not quite sure where he belonged in the maelstrom of 1968, he was certain about the trajectory that lay ahead for the country. We will be fighting for 40 years, he wrote. Even now, that fight rages on. Many of its origins can be found in Mailer's one-of-a-kind account of a GOP in transition to the Reagan Revolution in Miami and of a divided Democratic Party descending into chaos in Chicago. And that was a reading from Frank Fritch's article on Miami and the Siege of Chicago, an informal history of the Republican and Democratic conventions of 1968. It is part of this new book, Chicago by the Book, put out by the Caxton Club. And we are here with two members of the Caxton Club, Kim Coventry and Susan Rawson. Guys, how did you get some of the people who have contributed to this book to contribute to this book in the first place? Because it is kind of a murderer's row of critics. you got Sarah Paretsky in here, which is a pretty big get. Well, uh, we... Uh worked hard it that was a whole second list making exercise so we had we went through the whole exercise of selecting the titles that we were going to focus on and then we created a list of possible authors trying to pair a, a particular book with a with someone who could say something compelling and interesting about the the book and make the argument as to why that book had an influence or an impact on Chicago's reputation and identity. Um, so we, you know, there were some obvious choices, um, and what we found was that once we explained the objective and we explained the reason for the book, um, 
most people that we approached uh, were very happy and generous um, in uh, the assignment. It was, um, I think, a double-edged sword that we um, really only required them to write 600 words. Um, that you know, that's that's the the upside and the downside. The downside of it, it being that um, it's very difficult to say something in 600 words. Um, but we wanted to stick to that because we wanted the book to be able to be beautifully illustrated. So we approached them. We called them. We emailed them. We, um, you know, it explained what we were doing. It helped that early on some of the notable authors signed on so that we could tell, you know, subsequent uh, people we were requesting that s certain notables had signed on and that, you know, the book was going to have some pretty um, heavy-hitting um, authors. Did you have specific choices for specific books, or did you just want notable people to choose from the list? No, we were very deliberate in uh, the assignments that we made. Uh, we so very you, you chose Frank Rich then to do this? To the, do this. You know, in one or two cases, in Sorry. one or two cases, we did um, uh, ask an author to uh, write something in particular, and they asked if they could change uh, the title that they were writing about, not you know, we, we didn't give them latitude to change um, a, a book by a particular author, but we gave them latitude to change a different book to, to a different title by the same author. Um, but, um, no, everybody was uh, very happy to do so. Uh, we wanted um, people who, in the case of Frank Rich, he had written a uh, prologue to the most recent a reprint of Miami and the Siege of Chicago. Yeah, for the New York Review of Books. Right. Yeah, right. So we knew that he was very cognizant about this book. So um, our committee happened to, many of them were, a uh, number of them, uh, really understood and knew the literature about Chicago, and they knew who had written most recently or most compellingly about a subject. Um, but there were certain people like Sarah Paretsky who were just happy that she was willing to participate, mm -hmm. and she basically chose what she wanted to do. She chose Gwendolyn Brooks' um, book of poetry, um, and uh, but she was one of the few that had that kind of well that latitude. latitude. Mm -hmm. um, but most everybody um, loved the selection that we picked for them. I mean, it, it was. But the Gwendolyn Brooks was always on our list. The Gwen that was on our list, but she picked it. I mean, she said, that's what I want to write about. Mm -hmm. well, um, she, she also made the list, the yes. list of yes. 101. Yes. Yes. I think she might have been the only one from the no, 21st Alex Kotlowitz. century. Kotlowitz, oh. of course, yes. Well, right, but Kotlowitz's book that made it was from 92. I think oh. Paretsky was the only one who published, whose book that was on the list was published no, after there, 2000. There are several. Jimmy yes. Corrigan. Yeah. Oh, Jimmy oh, Corrigan. Yes, yeah, of course, Jimmy Corrigan. Right. Chris there are several yeah. of them, but we didn't want to go too far t into toward the present because we wanted some distance from these books. And the reason that Sarah Paretsky's book is 2015 is that the person who chose to write about her wanted to do that book. She could have picked anything from, from, her, her, catalog. from her long catalog of books uh, yeah. about well, the also, Yeah, it takes some time to know if something had an impact. <laughs> on mm. the city's Absolutely. reputation. Exactly. So you, you do need to have some time. I, I like this, just going back to the reading of this pick of Miami and the Siege of Chicago, because for younger people, people don't understand, like, Chicago was in the national spotlight, and then it just went berserk, you know, like just turning the cops loose on these kids in the park and the rioting and everything. But, you know, Mailer gets a lot of flack right now from the PC contingent, but I my personal opinion is you have to separate the work from the person and i found this well the first time i read this i've read miami and the siege of chicago twice but if you want to get like a bird's eye view i mean you feel like you're there and it was just such a spectacle and i recently saw the ken burns vietnam documentary too and they also have a large segment and uh it was uh you know just the behavior of daily and the behavior of the police and i mean it was it was you know a, the, the Democratic Convention makes me think of Daly, makes me think of the book that you highly mm. recommended to me, American Pharaoh. Mm. I, I think that was 21st century publication. Yeah. And I was wondering if that was one of the candidates that just didn't make the cut. Because there is a Daly book and there's Boss by Mike Royko, a very, very famous book. But uh, American Pharaoh was a really comprehensive history of the Daly machine. And I was wondering if it was somewhere in the 120 or even 350. 
I don't recall that it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We we could make a list of what didn't make it into this book, and we'd have another book. You could have um, all a book. Yeah. yeah. And what, was uh, there was there what was the ones that just missed the cut? Then everybody asks us that. Well, um, I, and I yes, that's correct. You're on radio, so we are asking you that. <laughs> that's what happens when you get interviewed. So, what were the ones that didn't make the cut? Um, Top ones. There had to be some double. I was I was looking for Nelson Algren's Man with the Golden Man with the Golden. Well, that was because Kotlowitz said he didn't want to write about that book. Um, oh, it's Alex's fault. Okay, uh, we'll Alex's blame fault. Alex. Next right. time we see him, we're yeah, we'll he wanted to do City on the Make, and and uh, he has also written a lot about City on the Make, so yeah. it was something he could do, and and he did it beautifully. And there were plenty of bellow to choose from. Well, Augie March, I guess, makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. Well. We were talking before that? the show about Augie March, and it was mentioned that the it, it's the most Chicago oriented of Bellows' book, isn't that correct? Yeah. Right. But yeah. what 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 was the what was a near miss that that somebody wasn't represented in here that that might maybe ought to have been colored um, patent leather shoes. Oh yes. Uh, do patent leather shoes, shoes not reflect up yeah. or right. reflect up? Right. Yeah. That one almost made it and didn't. Who wrote that? I don't remember. It's a it's about Catholic school. Yeah, it's about oh, okay. Catholic school. Yeah, One a- of the things that we had trouble finding, oh, yeah. which we fully admit to, and it's in the introduction that was written by um, Neil Harris, who was a professor emeritus of uh, cultural history at the uh, University of Chicago. Um, he writes about the fact that we couldn't find a good book, really, that's dealt with religion in Chicago. Um, that that was a that was just something we couldn't find, and we were trying not to create a complete history of Chicago through the lens of books. We knew we couldn't do that, so uh, we just let go of that as a as a subject that we didn't cover. Hmm, that's interesting. When we come back, we've got to go to a break in a second here. When we come back, I actually want to take us through uh, some of the magazines that you mention here, uh, because you do talk about Playboy, Ebony and Jet. Esquire, among others. And we're going to hear a reading about a a magazine that many people don't know started in Chicago, but was wildly influential, and that is Weird Tales. We're going to hear about that and more from Chicago by the Book with the Caxton Club after these messages from the folks that make this radio station possible. You are, of course, listening to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpin' Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpinradio.com. Forty-three, Weird Tales by Carlo Rotea. In 2009, at the age of 92, the great fantasy and science fiction writer Jack Vance recalled the life-altering effect on him of reading the pulp magazine Weird Tales as an adolescent during the Great Depression. Vance said, I waited at the mailbox every month with my tongue hanging out for the latest issue. The stories he read there by Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, C.L. Moore, Clark Ashton Smith, and other virtuosos of fantasy and horror played a crucial role in his becoming a writer, just as Vance's own work would in turn influence Michael Chabon, Neil Gaiman, and George R.R. Martin. The magazine that fired the young Vance's imagination came from Chicago, which was a capital of weird publishing in the early decades of the 20th century. In the realms of self-help and spiritual guidance, the Egyptian Publishing Company, Sun Worshippers Publishing Company, Mazdaznan Publishing Company, and especially DeLorence Scott & Company, produced a rich assortment of occult and esoteric volumes. Weird Tales, first appearing in 1923, enjoyed a decade and a half of unmatched glory as the home of fantastic fiction under the editorship of Farnsworth Wright, 1888-1940. Until it moved to New York City in 1938 and went into decline, It was the finest of the fantasy pulps and remains perhaps the most influential fantasy periodical of all time. What Black Mask, the New York-based pulp magazine in which Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, and others perfected the hard-boiled detective and noir sensibility, was to crime fiction, Weird Tales was to fantasy, especially at the noir end of the genre spectrum. It was not just the writing inside the magazine that caused tongues to hang out. Its covers typically featured alluring women wearing little or no clothing, and accessorized with whips, daggers, fetishistic restraints, and slavering demons. The most lurid of these cover images were painted by Margaret Brundage, 1900-1976, a native Chicagoan who had attended McKinley High School in the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. Walt Disney was a classmate at both. Unlike Frank Franzetta's pneumatic otoliths and apoplectically muscular he types that have long reigned as the canonical norm in pulp fantasy art, 
Brundage's wan Lausch characters look more like flappers and lounge lizards trapped in a bondage-themed opium nightmare. But above all else, Weird Tales was a treasure house of stylish writing for a popular audience in which distinctive voices offered up heaping portions of adventure, horror, and the uncanny. Here's Lovecraft. Into Thalarian, the city of a thousand wonders, many have passed but none return. There walk only demons and mad things that are no longer men, and the streets are white with the unburied bones of those who have looked upon the Idolan Lati that reigns over the city. And Howard. Then with a fierce cry, Valerius's sword was sheathed in her breast with such fury that the point sprang out between her shoulders. With an awful shriek, the witch sank down, writhing in convulsions, grasping at the naked blade as it was withdrawn, smoking and dripping. And more. And he could not stir in that slimy, ecstatic embrace. And a weakness was flooding that grew deeper after each succeeding wave of intense delight. And the traitor in his soul strengthened and drowned out the revulsion. And something within him ceased to struggle as he sank wholly into a blazing darkness that was oblivion to all else but that devouring rapture. Such writing was not the moralizing fantasy of J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, Oxford dons who courted literary respectability by dressing up their stories in the trappings of epic. Weird tales offered unapologetic genre fiction, stripped to its formulaic essence and seething with pulpy vitality and a yen for strangeness. And welcome back. You were listening to I-94 here on Lumpen Radio, WLPLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. My name is Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. Mr. Michael Sack. Hello again. Today, we are joined by Kim Coventry and Susan Ross, and they're from the Caxton Club. And we just heard an excerpt from their new volume, Chicago by the Book. It is a collection of 101 books that pamphlets, magazines, and stuff like that that you should know about. That was a reading from uh, Carlo Rotello's essay on the Chicago Magazine Weird Tales. We want to thank, as always, Shanna Van Volt and this week's musicians, the Chandeliers, for that. Weird Tales, uh, we were talking, uh, in fact, while you guys were listening to that, we were talking with Kim and Susan about the fact that Weird Tales actually was not on their radar, but is, in fact, a hugely influential magazine. And I do wish to note that the reader of these uh, of these stories is a big collector of science fiction and pulp stories and uh, is as a great deal of knowledge about them and was extremely enthused by the fact that Weird Tales was being focused because it gave us Conan the Barbarian, it gave us the Lovecraft mythos, it gave us uh, basically uh, a lot of the roots of what became modern fantasy. And if you're a Game of Thrones fan, George R.R. Martin uh, was a huge devotee and still is of those original Weird Tales pulps. It is one of the many magazines that Chicago put out, including Playboy, Esquire, Ebony and Jet, to name just some. Kim and Susan, what made Chicago, in your opinion, such a fertile place for magazines? Because that is a specific thing yeah. that the Midwest really embraced and, and we did very well at. Um, that's a good question. Um, first of all, printing in Chicago was a big thing. I mean, we had uh, – this is a great printing center. It's a natural location because we're not far by railroad from the from the lumber sources of lumber. So the city became a great printing center, which I think is one of the reasons why economically they could print magazines here. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, Donnelly's printed a number of... Oh, R. Donnelly things. down in Peoria, right? No, they're in, they yeah. were in Chicago. But are they, oh, excuse me, they're now in Sparta, Illinois. They do uh, many comic books, which is, uh, of course, one of my passions. So R.R. Donnelly has been a leading comic book printer for both Marvel and DC for nearly 80 years. But uh, they started out here in Chicago and then moved to Sparta? Oh, yeah, they were founded here in Chicago. Oh, they I still have no They idea. have manufacturing plants all over the country. That I didn't know, because most of the comic books uh, from the 80s on come from Sparta, Illinois, specifically. Uh -huh. They used uh, to print the phone books, right, didn't the Donnelly's? They did, yeah. yes. Oh, that's and, amazing. And, and uh, well, about an eight or nine items in our book were, were printed by R.R. Donnelly, the uh, Sears and Montgomery Wards, the uh, Chicago uh, uh, Plan, um, the Lakeside Classics, the four American books that they, they published okay. and printed. So it, Donnelly shows up in this book in a, in a big way. Mm -hmm. And printing in, in general, as Susan was saying, shows up in a big, a big way. So when I was a child, and this may be a little off topic, but I thought of Sparta, Illinois as the home of comic books. And when I was a little kid, I wanted to make a pilgrimage there because I just assumed <laughs> that every place in Sparta, Illinois would have comic books floor to ceiling because that, it were all, all the comic books were stamped. You know, Superman comics came from Sparta, Illinois. So I did not know that. Well, did you make it? 
I've never been to Sparta, oh, Illinois. It's way down south, to, isn't it? Mm, I've never been there. But what, though, was fertile about Chicago for men that wanted to actually make magazines? Obviously, it was good to print them here, and you had a lot of paper pulp. But, I mean, Hugh Hefner came here and decided that he was going to found Playboy. Uh, Weird Tales is founded here. There, there must be something, I don't know if it's in the water. I mean, Evanston had a number of, of printing books. Ace and Pocket books were printed out of Evanston for years. So there was something else here that was something that gave rise to that kind of creativity. Did you guys explore that at all when well, you guys were Well, I, I think that we concluded that creativity in general was uh, um, able to happen here in a way because Chicago didn't have a lot of rules already in, in place. There was a, a, a freedom that could happen here that couldn't happen, for example, in New York. So this is the birthplace of a lot of new, new in, in every way, and magazines being one of the one of the manifestations of that. Um, I don't know that we that Chicago has more than its share of magazines, but it certainly is a place where some very important magazines um, uh, were born. Um, and Playboy, Esquire, as you point out, uh, Ebony, Jet, um, were Downbeat, Downbeat, mm-hmm. yeah, which is still published. Which is still published. Yeah, Ebony and Jet, I think, have, have just ceased publication, unfortunately. That's something else that we haven't talked about. Chicago also had a large nexus of African-American publishing, which was unusual uh, for a northern city as well. And Ebony and Jet, of course, we should, we should mention them. I don't have a reading from them today to play for you guys. But that was one of the premier publications for African-Americans, uh, not only in the United States, but globally. It really put African-American fashion, music, art, culture, um, into the popular consciousness in a way it hadn't been. Do you think that was because Chicago itself, after the Great Migration, did have a large center in Bronzeville of African-American artists and writers uh, that gave these magazines a base to go off of? Because Playboy, obviously, also, when they started out, printed, unusually for the time, a number of African-American authors. They had African-American artists and cartoonists. Matt Baker was featured in their pages uh, and stuff like that. Well, Playboy's clubs were the first integrated social they clubs were, in yes. America. Yes, they were. And I'm not a big like Playboy guy, but I saw a documentary on Hefner, so that's how I know. <laughs> well, I mean, Playboy, I got I got paid by Playboy, so I've got nothing bad to say about them. They paid very, very good page rates back in the day. And God bless them, they helped me buy a house. So, um, <laughs> you know, but w- was that part of it, too? Because, I mean, that, that is an unusual thing that I, I think uh, there's a subtext in the book of, of African-American culture as well that, that does come through from, from stories of Ebony and Jet right through Alex Kotlowitz's books. Well, we have even had a SI but, uh, mayoral candidate, Tony Preckwinkle, about Ida B. Wells and the, the uh, yes, lack that, of African-Americans at the uh, exposition. At the 1893 World's Fair, yes. And she was a journalist um, uh, and a major, you know, um, a major fighter for civil rights. Um, yes, there, there, there is a lot about the African-American community here. Not uh, some of it written by whites. In other words, some of the sociologists that wrote about urban problems were white, uh, but some were not. Um, and some were uh, African-Americans who did sociology degrees at the University of Chicago and wrote about their studies. Um, we also have, you know, the poems of Gwendolyn Brooks. We have Richard Wright's Native Son. We have Lorraine Hansberry's uh, Raisin in the Sun. So we have voices. Did Willard Motley pop up at all, the novelist Willard Motley? He did, but we didn't include him. We're big advocates of Motley Mm. on this show. Yeah? Yeah. Well, we love him. Which, which, you know, his big novel was the the opposite. Motley was African-American, and his knock on any door had a a white uh, Italian Catholic protagonist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why not, right? I found out just randomly. I found a signed copy of Knock on Any Door at a thrift store in Pilsen for a dollar. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not kidding. Well, uh, yeah, and of course, also famous is I think his son, or maybe he's an artist, uh, Archibald, Archibald Motley, Motley, yeah. who's a really great. Oh, wait, uh, I think that's his brother. Is that his brother? Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask about the Lakeside Classics. Um, they're still published, from what I understand, and I had never heard of this. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about the Lakeside Classics? I find that quite fascinating. Yes. Well, it is pretty fascinating. Uh, the Lakeside Classics were a um, uh, advertising, really, and marketing endeavor by T.E. Donnelly, who was then the 
head of the company, R.R. Donnelly and Sons Company. His father had founded the company. And what T.E. Donnelly observed in 1903, when the first classic was published, was that um, the printing industry had fallen into the habit uh, for competitive reasons of giving very, very lavish and expensive um, annual holiday gifts to their customers. And T.E. Donnelly wanted to draw a line in the sand. And so he decided that in, instead of that, he didn't want to compete on that level, he would produce a beautifully written, uh, beautifully edited, printed, bound, small pocket volume first-person Americana, that that would be their gift, annual gift, to their clients and friends of the company. And um, indeed, they are lovely gem, little gems. And um, they also, another um, uh, criteria was that they had to have been out of print, um, so hard to get. And they are they uh, the binding on the books changes color in every 25 years. It's believed that this is the longest lived series of Americana. Now, in the last um, oh 16 or so years, as the company became a global enterprise, the titles selected have become also global in nature. Um, but they're still first-person narratives and things that are um, out of print. And um, it is high, they are highly collectible. People still today try to assemble an entire collection of the books. And, um, and it has um, very much tied to, the, to Chicago's identity as a place where publishing happens and thrives on a very high level. Still pocket-sized? Still pocket-sized. The format has never changed, just the color of the binding. It's interesting, too. Uh, it says that they, they wanted to prove that books could be produced on commercial presses as otherwise employed for magazines and things. So it's like mass-produced. Is that a safe thing to say? Well, so in the early years, we don't have records for how many copies were printed. Uh, but later on, when as the company grew and their list of shareholders, and when they became public, I believe in 1957, that list expanded, the number of friends expanded. So they were printing many, many thousands of copies. And But yes, to your point, T.E. Donnelly had a, a two-pronged uh, approach here. He wanted to, to halt that lavish gift-giving, but he also wanted to demonstrate that his presses that were printing phone books and um, magazines um, and um, other kind of commercial products could print a very fine uh, quality book. And just for people that don't know anything about commercial printing, what Donnelly's presses were doing was using newsprint stock and a what's called a slick stock for magazines. Uh, book stock is acid-free, and it's an entirely different kind of paper. It's also a different setup to run through the presses. Donnelly's presses in those days would have been uh, hot type or web-fed presses. Um, so it would have required uh, rescaling the printing, wouldn't it? Because it had to take a different feed of paper. They were letterpress printing. Well, they were in all letterpress in the beginning? In 1903, Ooh. yeah, they would have been letterpress. Well, but hot, that's still a hot type yeah. press. Yeah, but still, they would have had to have um, a different size paper feed to go through it. For commercial, you have to, even in those days, it was spool fed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when they transitioned into web fed printing in the 1970s, you still would have had to have a way to feed the smaller paper into the letterpresses. Mm -hmm. And letterpress printing, by the way, for people that don't know, is extremely time intensive yeah. and uh, also very difficult. Cumbersome, yeah. Uh, newspapers, just for people that know anything about this, the hot type ended, and it was called hot type because it was lead ingots that had to be put into a frame. Uh, that did not go out in commercial printing in the United States until the late 1970s. Wow. I believe... Um, New York Newsday, I believe, was the last newspaper in America to do that before it became a full web-fed press. But the giant spools of paper that are required to do a newspaper, you would need to scale that down to do book-sized paper. Donnelly, just as a point, Donnelly never real, never printed newspapers. Well, they printed they comic doing, books, though, But on they were newspaper. doing magazines yes. and large, to your point, large-run yeah. uh, uh, products. Uh, the the books were a shorter run. And, right. um, talk, talk about the... Um, about the four great books. 
Well, yeah, another attempt uh, by R. R. Donnelly to prove that Chicago and, and their presses in particular could produce very fine books was that in 1930, they decided to print, to publish and print uh, a marketing campaign called the Four American Books. And they chose four quintessential um, American um, uh, titles by four well-known authors, uh, they chose um, Two Years Before the Mast by Dana, Richard Henry Dana, Henry Dana Moby Dick by Herman Melville, uh, Tales by Edgar Allan Poe, and Walden's um, uh, uh, Henry David Thoreau. By Henry David Thoreau. And then they chose four um, American illustrators to illustrate each of the books. And they gave them a, a free reign. And uh, Rockwell Kent decided that he wanted to illustrate Moby Dick. And he just really took this uh, project in hand and he created a three-volume, large three-volume set with um, full-paged full full page illustrated plates and he even designed an aluminum slipcase for the book. He designed the mailing label, the wrapping paper, the box. The other three um, illustrators who designed the books, um, uh, Ed, Edward Wilson and um, William Dwiggins and Rudolf Ruzica did beautiful job, a beautiful job, but they didn't do quite what Rockwell Kent did. And his his Moby Dick has become, you know, identified as the definitive, um, the definitive um, edition of um, Moby Dick, and it this this um, marketing campaign really did um, catapult um, uh, the R.R. Donnelly and Sons Company into the um, fine fine book um, uh, manufacturing world. Let me just add, do a little plug for Moby Dick right now. There's an amazing exhibition, which I urge everyone to try to go see at the Newberry Library on Moby Dick. And you will see the Rockwell Kent um, books there, as well as you'll see some of his original um, drawings, um, because the Newberry has those archives. Right. And by the way, if you're ever curious about what R. Donnelly does, in your mailbox very soon, they've been awarded the contract to the 2020 census. So when you get that, it is actually being printed by R.R. Donnelly downstate. We only have a couple minutes left. Guys, I, I did want to just kind of wrap this up because uh, we do want to play one final uh, selection for the book. It is actually Alex Kotlowis, friend of the show, on Nelson Algren before we get out. What is coming up next for the Caxton Club? What What's the next publication? You got this one out, but what's, what's coming up next? Well, the Publications Committee of the Caxton Club um, publishes what we like to say is an occasional book. <laughs> so that kind of is every five years. Um, and we have we did sit down the other day to talk about what we might like to think about in the future, and we, we did not come to any conclusions. One of the questions on the table is, do we want to do um, another what we consider to be a blockbuster for our from our standpoint, because we've never done a book that's been this popular or, or um, so broadly accepted, and um, or do we want to do another narrow, more bibliophilic topic? Do we want to remain focused on Chicago and do another Chicago-focused book? Because there's certainly a lot of um, territory that's uh, you know to explore, or do we want to do um, do something that has maybe more national? appeal. So we haven't landed on a topic. Very good. Well, we've been talking with Kim Coventry and Susan Rawson there from the co-publication, they're the co-publication chairs of the Caxton Club. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank we you. We really you, appreciate it. Guys, we're going to go out with, again, one more selection from Chicago by the Book. It is published by the Caxton Club. You can get all sorts of information about that wherever fine books are sold. This is by Alex Kotlowitz with this. We'll see you well, next time on I-94. Seventy-one, Chicago, City on the Make, by Alex Kotlowitz. When I moved to Chicago in late 1983, I found an apartment on Evergreen Street in Wicker Park, at the time a hardscrabble working-class neighborhood. I soon learned that my street's name had recently been a source of controversy. An author named Nelson Elgren had lived down the street, and shortly after his death a couple of years earlier, his friends convinced the city to rechristen it Elgren Avenue. Residents protested, and so the city reversed course. It became Evergreen again. It was, I would learn, a fitting afterward to Elgren's unrequited love for the city. 
I had never heard of Elgren, so I went to a used bookstore and found a slim volume, Chicago, City on the Make. On a blustery, cold winter night, I sat by the gas heater in my kitchen, riveted and warmed by this angry, blustery, yet tender prose poem. Elgren wrote like John Coltrane playing sax, with a kind of disciplined improvisation, riffing on a city that, with all its contradictions, clearly gave him life. I was hooked on Elgren, on Chicago. With the publication in 1950 of The Man with the Golden Arm, the first novel to win the National Book Award, Elgren, 1909 to 1981, became a sought-after writer. On assignment for Holiday Magazine, he wrote this elegiac letter to Chicago, a city that he both loved and hated, and a city that both loved and hated him back. When it was published as a book in 1951, local critics panned it, and so it disappeared until the French philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, whose wife, Simone de Beauvoir, was Elgren's lover for a time, translated it into French. Elgren once took Beauvoir to a down-and-out tavern on what was then a down-and-out Madison Street. Dancing among drunks and prostitutes, she remarked, It's beautiful. Elgren laughed. With us, he said. Ugliness and beauty, the grotesque and the tragic, and good and evil, each has its place. Americans don't like to think these extremes mingle. But Elgren did, and that's the power of City on the Make. It holds the celebratory and the tragic side by side. Consider what may be the most off-quoted passage. Yet once you've come to be part of this particular patch, you'll never love another. Like loving a woman with a broken nose, you may well find lovelier lovelies, but never a lovely so real. In City on the Make and subsequent novels, Elgren wrote about drug dealers and addicts, fighters, and floozies. He gave voice to the inarticulate. In his ode to Chicago, he admired its beauty and boldness, along with its cruelty and hustling nature. You'll know this is the place built out of man's ceaseless failure to overcome himself. Out of man's endless war against himself, we build our success as well as our failures, making it the city of all cities, most like man himself, loneliest creation of all this very old, poor earth. Elgren was speaking of Chicago, but he was also describing himself. He ultimately left the city for the East Coast. Though Chicago never named a street after him, it did build a memorial at the corner of Division Street and Milwaukee Avenue. It is an unremarkable fountain set in a small triangular park, a place inhabited by day laborers and drifters, though the area is becoming shinier and wealthier. Elgren would have had something to say, no doubt, about the changing nature of his former neighborhood, but his sentiments are forever engraved on that fountain, even if they are hard to make out. The line is from City on the Make. For the masses who do the city's labor also keep the city's heart. Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the Caxton Club Chicago by the book 101 Publications That Shaped the City. This episode originally aired on March 31, 2019. I-94 is a and Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.